You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. What are we doing here? That's a question I ask myself sometimes. Like one time I was uh, studying this, the story of um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac with a guy. He'd asked me to study that with him. We read a book about it. We had met several weeks to talk about this story and several weeks into it, I asked some really specific question about like how Sarah would have responded to this and he said, oh, I've never really thought of this as having actually happened. I'm like, what are we, what are we talking about? What are we doing here? Uh, when people talk about how badly they want community uh, but then they're not really present or they're present and they're unwilling to be honest about their actual life, I just, I'm just like, what are, what are we doing here? When MailChimp tells me how many of you actually read the emails that we send out, what are we, what are we doing, seriously? What are we doing? That could be the title of 1 Corinthians. It could be called, what are we doing here? Uh, it's, this is really just a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and it feels very much like we're reading somebody's mail. Uh, because Paul is dealing directly with very personal issues in the church, and most of them are embarrassing. The problem is they weren't embarrassed. Like, they were proud. They thought they were doing fine because they were measuring themselves against the values and the practices of the world around them. And that's a really difficult pastoral situation. You sort of scratch your head, and you're like, what are we doing? It's hard because when you're dealing with someone who's immature but proud who can't see themselves accurately, it's really hard to help them. Sometimes you have to get like very specific and blunt about the things that they're doing so that they can really see it for what it is and see themselves as they are. In the passage we're looking at today, Paul actually says to them, I'm saying these things to your shame. We're like, well, you're not supposed to shame people. No, that's not his main goal. His main goal is that they would grow and mature in the faith, but They'll never get there until they first see how shameful their behavior really is. The specific issue in this passage has to do with how they're settling disputes. And they were doing it like everyone did it. They were taking each other to court. Uh, they lived in a very litigious society as we do, and so that felt very normal to them. Uh, if you, uh, it, it may not have occurred to them that they were even doing anything wrong by taking each other to court. The same is true for us. Uh, it's really easy for us to adopt cultural values and cultural practices and then bring them into the life of this community without even knowing that we're doing it or even understanding the extent of the consequences for doing it. Uh, let me give you an example. We live in a consumer economy which is to say, our economy is way more dependent on what we buy and spend than it is on what we invest or produce. That's just how our, our culture is set up. And so we're trained to, to see ourselves primarily as like autonomous individuals who are responsible for meeting our needs. And the way we do that is by, you know, considering all of the things that are available to us, finding the best things for us that meet our needs and lifestyle and preferences and getting them consuming them. And so if we bring that mindset into the church, we're much more likely to think about the church in terms of what we can get out of it 
than in terms of what we can invest or contribute into it. And that leads to a host of issues, but one of the issues is that we tend to reduce the role of the church in our lives. Like, if we see the church as like a resource, you know, where we get stuff that we need. We get a, we get a worship service, a cool band, some Bible study, you know, stuff like that. We get the spiritual stuff that we need. If that's all we think of church is, then it'll never to occur to us that church has something to say to like personal matters in our life. The kinds of things that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians. We'll never see ourselves as members of a body as long as we have a consumer relationship to the church. But if we did see ourselves as members of a body, if we saw ourselves as vitally connected and accountable to one another and responsible for one another, then we would act very differently in the church than the consumer norms of our culture, wouldn't we? See, this whole idea of how the church is to operate differently than the world operates is a big deal to Paul. Because Paul is trying to tell us that the church is meant to exist in contrast to the world to put on display the wisdom and the beauty and the power of God over and against the things that the world would deem wise and strong. He wants them to see this, and so he does three things in this text and really in many of the texts in 1 Corinthians. He, he confronts a specific issue, a specific problem that they're having in the church. In this passage, it's Christians taking each other to court, basically acting like everyone in their culture acted. Then he calls them to live differently. In this case, he calls them to settle their disputes in the church. And then he answers the question, why is this such a big deal? Because often in these passages, it seems like Paul is making a huge deal out of like very normal everyday stuff. And he wants us to see why it's a big deal. So let's look at the problem at hand first. Lawsuits between Christians. Verse one. 1 Corinthians 6, verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law, to court, before the unrighteous or unjust instead of the saints? Right, so here's the problem. Christians are taking other Christians to court. Instead of submitting themselves to one another, they're submitting themselves to people outside the church. That, that term, the unrighteous or the unjust, generally speaking, just designates people who are outside the church. He's saying, why would you take our issues, which could be settled in here, out there for them to judge? So right off the bat, this challenges the way you think about church, doesn't it? Like if church is just a, a resource where we get spiritual stuff, then it would never occur to us that it would be the place where we would take financial disputes between each other, does it? But that's what he's saying. He's like, financial disputes, you would typically say like, well, that kind of stuff, I mean, we go to court for that, right? Paul's like, no, how dare you do that? Let's clarify two things real quick. Paul is not denigrating the courts in general. On a number of occasions, Paul appealed to the judicial system of his day. In Romans 13, he tells us to be subject to governing authorities. So it's not denigrating all situations. He's not saying Christians are above being judged in secular courts. Particularly related to criminal matters. Criminal matters should be reported to authorities. What's happening here is a civil case. Look in verse two, he calls them trivial cases. Later he calls them things pertaining to this life. In other words, like everyday matters. 
This is not a criminal matter. It's a civil dispute between two Christians, probably to do with money or property. You know, it's like a, a business contract not being honored, a handshake deal not being honored, like intellectual property dispute, something of that nature. Somebody's been cheated out of something that they think is theirs, and their response is to take the other person to court, you know, to get justice. But Paul says for Christians to take each other to the court, even though that would be normal out there, it's a disgrace for you in here. Why? In their world and in ours, this was the normal way to do it. But Paul says it's a disgrace, and here's the first reason. They're seeking justice at the hands of the unjust. And by justice, he means you know, getting what you think belongs to you. They're trying to settle an issue, an in-house issue, out of house. Uh, look what he says. He says, you go to law before the unrighteous. And so if they bring their dispute to court, they're gonna be judged by judges and juries who probably do not share the same beliefs and values that they share. And more than that, the civil courts in this era were, were known for their corruption. And so just by the very nature of it, they're, they're setting themselves up to be judged unjustly. But if they would bring their dispute to the church, then they would be judged by Christians who have God's word and who believe in God's ways. They're not going to judge perfectly, right? Our discernment is not perfect, but I think what Paul's saying is, yes, but we have the Holy Spirit who's guiding and directing us through the process. The question really becomes, who do we trust more? The official judge or the Spirit of God living inside of us? Second reason that it's a disgrace is because they're damaging the witness of the church. At that time, the, the judgment seat was actually in the marketplace. It was a very public arena. And it was like a thing that you did. You know, if you had like the day off, you had nothing to do, you might just go down to the marketplace and watch people duke it out in court. It was a form of entertainment. It was like their version of our reality TV. Let's go see what people are arguing about. And Paul's saying, yeah, if somebody comes down to the marketplace to see what people are arguing about, and here's two Christians who belong to the, this new Christian church in town, and they're duking it out and leaving it up to unrighteous judges to solve their own matters, what are they gonna think? They're gonna think, this is fun. I knew these guys were a bunch of yahoos. See, not only are you dishonoring your brother or sister in public, you're telling the world that the church and the gospel doesn't have the resources that we need to overcome personal grievances. Like when we act just like the world acts, when we do things just like everyone else does them, we are usually saying that the gospel is powerless or irrelevant. We're not saying with our mouths, but people don't care what they're saying with their They're watching what we're saying with our lives. That's why it's a disgrace. So, the first challenge, kind of like at the practical level from this text is this. Do you have lawsuits against Christians? Like are you taking your disputes to the public arena to get judged? If you're a lawyer, this is a thing to consider. Are you taking cases that would lead to two Christians opposing one another in court? Paul says don't do that. You don't need to do that. These can be resolved in the church. That's where he goes next. All right, so 
Verse one is primarily directed at people who are doing this, taking each other to court. Verses two through six then broaden out and he's talking to the whole church. And he's trying to say, look, there is a better way to do this. He's calling them to live differently and that is to, to be the kind of church that's equipped and ready to solve disputes in house. So look at verse two. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To settle a dispute in church is, is about more than justice, isn't it? It's about like the spiritual health of all the parties involved. It's about the spiritual health of the whole body. It's better by far to do that, but, but we don't always do it. And so Paul wants to address some, some reasons why we don't do this. I think he's anticipating some objections to this proposal to solve disputes within the church. And here's the first concern or objection, and that is that the church isn't competent to judge civil or legal matters. It's like, look, if I've got like a financial dispute or a breach of contract, I'm not bringing it before Kendall. He knows nothing about the law. I'm, I gotta go to a lawyer. And I think Paul's saying, hold up. Don't jump so quickly to that. Paul thinks we're competent and he gives two arguments to make his case. Here's the first one. In verse two, he says, the saints will judge the world. You knew that, right? Like Paul's talking about this like it's common knowledge. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Well, in some capacity, part of what it means that we inherit Christ's inheritance is that we will reign and rule with him forever. And there is some really meaningful and practical way in which we are going to judge and rule the world with Christ. And so Paul's just saying, because the kingdom of God is already at hand and because Jesus is already now building his church, we should be living into that future reality now. We're gonna judge the world. I think we can figure out some, you know, some financial stuff. And because the word of God is living and active and because the spirit of God is alive in us, we're equipped to do this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you not incompetent? Are you not competent to try just like trivial cases? It's an argument from greater to lesser. Here's the second thing. We're gonna judge angels. Sure we are. Richard Pratt notes that when Christ returns, we will pass judgment on the fallen angels. And if we're gonna share in the judgment of the cosmos, doesn't it stand to reason that we could determine matters of pertaining to this life, just everyday stuff? So what Paul's saying is, hey, we should not dismiss the role of the church, the authority of the church, and the ability because of the spirit who lives in us of Christians to solve disputes, even legal or financial ones. This is what Jesus taught us to do. Uh, we looked at this last week, but if you apply it to this situation, it would go like this. If we have a dispute, then I need to go to you and tell you, hey, we have a dispute, and here's what I need from you to make this right. And if you didn't wanna do that, 
then I would need to bring other people, even people like Kendall, into the mix. And then we would ask you together to like make this right. And if you didn't want to do that, if you still were unrepentant, then I would have to bring the church, which, which I think means the leaders or the elders of the church. There's a kind of the governing influence or body of the church. They would need to come into the picture and work toward resolution. And if, if you were still unrepentant and unsubmissive to the leaders of the church, then you would have to be admonished and removed from the church. That's what we looked at last week. Now, in our culture, being removed from the church usually looks like you just leaving because you can't. Like in Corinth, there was one church. Here we got a bunch, and so if you don't like what's happening here, you just go somewhere else. That's part of the consumer mindset that we've brought into the deal. So all that to say, I have seen that process worked out in many different situations in this church. I have seen people bring all kinds of disputes, from personal disputes to marital disputes to financial disputes to workplace issues, intellectual property arguments, all of that. I've seen all of those things brought to the community of the church and seen it worked out in the church rather than taken to court where it could have easily gone. Uh, just recently, someone came to our elders and, and asked about a situation where their business partner was not following through on a, on a deal that they had made. And so he was being defrauded of some money. And uh, so we were like, well, have you gone through this process? And so he had. He had gone to that person, and then he had brought some other people into it, and that person had agreed to a certain arrangement, but then was backing out. And so he was kind of like, what's next? Do, do I have to take this to court? And we said, well, there's one more step. And uh, the complication here was this guy goes to a different church. So what do you do there? Well, that's, that's a little sticky, but in my experience, what you do is you go to the other church and you get their leaders involved. Now, when that's done and both churches are working together, it is so beautiful. It promotes the unity of the church, not only here, but in our city. It's really powerful. And in this case, when that option was given to this person, he repented and ended up honoring the deal that was made. Now, look, maybe he was just afraid of getting his elders involved. Maybe he was genuinely convicted of his sin. Maybe a little bit of both. In any case, the situation was handled in the church, not in the courts, in a way that honored people and God and worked for the health of the body. That's how you put the display, the power of God on display to the world. I, I just wonder, do you think about the church like this? a place where you have that kind of responsibility for one another and that kind of accountability to one another. A place where you would bring really personal matters that aren't spiritual to be judged by others. It requires that we trust God's work in and through his people, doesn't it? That's the first concern, is that the church isn't competent the second concern is that we don't want to be called to live according to God's values sometimes. Like if what I'm really concerned about, what I really want is my money and the, the money that's due me, I got to get mine. If that's what I really want, then I don't want to submit myself to a process that might call me to turn the other cheek or love my enemy or take a loss. I don't want that at all. What Paul's saying is, look, being a family means we put our responsibility for one another above our personal rights. Look at verse seven. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But instead, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. See, the the law of the kingdom is love. Jesus says, look, this is the new command I'm giving you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul says in Romans 13 that to love one another fulfills the law. That's the law of God's kingdom, to love one another. The existence of lawsuits among them shows that they have lost sight of the supreme law of love. Worse, they did the opposite of love. Verse eight says, not only are you not willing to take the loss, you're willing to inflict injustice on the other person to get what's yours. Because the courts at that time favored the wealthy and the powerful, it was, it was almost impossible for someone of lesser means to have a fair shot at justice. And so Paul's just saying, look, you're taking your stuff to a corrupt court into a situation where those who have less than you are going to lose. You would rather do that than just take the loss? We say, well, look, if we've been cheated and the other person won't repent, then we've we got to go to court, right? Paul says, no, there's another way. You could just take the loss. Why not? You're like, I can think of lots of reasons why not. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I'm not pretending that's easy. It's especially hard if what you want the most is your money. I think Paul's saying it's okay to pursue justice in civil matters. It's okay to want the right outcome. But do it within the church. And if the other person doesn't repent, i.e. you don't get justice, then be willing to let it go. That would be better than taking a brother or sister to court. We're not consumers. It's not about just getting what belongs to us. We're members of a body, connected, responsible, accountable with one another. And so we put our responsibility for one another above our personal rights. This is not the normal way of doing things. And that's the point. Richard Hayes in his commentary says, they are to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal social and economic structures of their city and instead imagine themselves as members of the eschatological or the future people of God, acting corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. What would be better, to get your money or prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God? That's what Paul's saying. Live in this world. This is reality. The consumer mindset shrinks everything. It just makes us really self-absorbed. We get entangled in all kinds of personal rights battles and issues and self-justification. And one of the ways I see that playing out is online. So those of you who've been feeling pretty good about yourselves because you're not taking anybody to court, you should ask yourself, but are you willing to take people to the court of social media? If you have a grievance with someone, a Christian or a church or a ministry or whatever it is, do you find it hard to just throw that out there for the world to judge? Is it, is it much different than this? 
It's worse, actually, because there is no justice out there. The sheer number of Christians, like I had to get off social media. I haven't been on social media in several weeks because one of the things is the sheer number of Christians taking other Christians to court in social media land is appalling. Like it, it started to make me feel sick. What made me feel really sick is how much I enjoyed reading it. Like as a form of entertainment, just like they would back then. So if you're putting it out there or if you're consuming it and enjoying it, it's wrong. It's disgraceful, is what Paul's saying. Man, how small of a world is that? Paul's calling us to live differently, to live in light of the world to come, to be willing to take a loss for the sake of the kingdom. All right, he confronts the problem. He calls them to live differently and now he answers the question, why is this such a big deal? That's an honest question to ask. Verse nine, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, got a little intense just now. Turned it up a little bit. Like we were just talking about lawsuits and then all of a sudden we're talking about inheriting the kingdom of God. Like our eternal destiny is at stake. What's going on here? Feels like a jump. Well, this is tied to verses seven and eight. So in verses seven and eight, Paul asks, why not rather be wronged instead of doing a wrong to your brother? And then he follows up with this question, or do you not know? In other words, the reason you might willing to do an injustice to your brother rather than suffer an injustice is because you don't know this, or, or you're acting like you don't know this. Do you not know that the unrighteous, the unjust, will not inherit the kingdom of God? That word inherit is, is interesting there. I think it's meant to show the irony of someone who would be so focused on their monetary gain that they've lost sight of the fact that they're gonna lose their eternal inheritance over it. They're willing to be unjust now and endure the judgment of God later, why? To clarify, he gives a list of behaviors that were common outside of the Christian community. So he's not saying, Look, one act of injustice, one lawsuit, and you're out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the people who have this kind of lifestyle, who would routinely make this choice, evidence themselves as not ever really being truly in. And he, he just gives us some other categories. Verse nine and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are not people who occasionally struggle with these things. These are people whose lifestyle is characterized by these things. People who live this way intently will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is another way of saying they, they never entered the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Sometimes when you come to a list like this, you're like, okay, let's talk about each of these things. I have questions about some of these things. I would be happy to talk about those questions with you, but for the purposes of this sermon, I just want us to stay focused on how this list serves the overall argument. And here's, here's how it does. Paul is simply contrasting the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of God to the lifestyle of those who are outside of the kingdom of God, those who live according to the ways of the world. And there, there are two basic groups of sins here. There's sexual sins, 
which here includes premarital and extramarital relations, um, practices associated with a lot of pagan religions, same-sex relations. All of these transgress God's design for sex and therefore have no place in the kingdom of God. That's the point he's trying to make. And then there's social sins. These are focused on selfish desires that take various forms of excess. So taking from others, withholding from others, having disregard for others, tearing others down. All of these violate the law of love and therefore have no place in the church of God. He wants them to see that that their sin goes much deeper than they think. The consequences reach much further than they think. It's even possible that they don't truly belong to the faith. This is the thing that he wants them to consider. This is why it's a big deal. There's a lot more at stake here than some money and property. I was, uh, <clears throat> when I was young, like in my 20s, I was raised money for a living, and, uh, which was great, because I got to spend time with a lot of people who were older than me who had more money and more experience with money, and I just got to learn a lot about different ways people view and handle money. And one of those guys' name was Wayne, and uh, Wayne, you know, 10 or 15 years older than me probably, and I remember talking to him one day and he was saying he was just got off a phone call and he was, one of his business partners was cheating him out of a project that they had done. The guy owed him 10 grand and he wasn't gonna get it. Now, 10 grand to me at that time was literally more money than I had to my name. Like I, that was a fortune. I would still consider that a pretty good chunk of change. And so I was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta get that. He was like, well, I'm not gonna do it. I was like, why not? And he, it was this. He literally talked about this passage with me. He said, we're, we're both Christians. It's not right for him to do this, but I'm not gonna sue him over it. That'd be the only way to get the money. I'm just not gonna do it. And I thought Wayne was crazy. I had no category for something like that, which is to say I had not considered this application of the gospel. The gospel gives us the means to do this. Uh, you know, Jesus himself exemplifies taking a loss. Jesus suffered a loss. He stood before the rulers of the age. He stood in the courts, falsely accused, falsely tried, but doesn't say a word. Like doesn't fight for his rights. Instead, he lays them down so that those who wronged him could be saved by him. Crazy. Jesus entrusted himself to God and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and by seating him at his right hand. And this is the thing Paul is pointing to. He's saying we will be raised up with Christ. We will be seated with him. We will rule with him. And so whatever loss you have to endure here in this world will pale in comparison to the glory that you will gain there with him. If you believe the gospel, then you're going, you believe that that is your destiny and you're willing to let some things go here. This is the way of the kingdom. Whoever wants to keep his life here is gonna lose it. Whoever loses his life here for Christ's sake will gain it. I thought Wayne was crazy. But Wayne actually knew what was at stake. This is the kind of thing that puts the wisdom of God and the power of God on display. It affected me profoundly. 
Now, living this way is not simply a matter of like doing the right thing or even a matter of being conformed to the norms of like church culture. That's not what it is. Living this way involves being transformed by the grace of God. Look what he says in verse 11. So verse nine, the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he gives a bunch of examples of all kinds of behaviors that are outside of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. The stuff in verses nine and 10 in the list. That was your story too. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of of our God. You see, the key to kingdom life is not, it does not begin with something that we did. It begins with something that God does. He washes, he sanctifies, he justifies. We were unrighteous. Paul in Romans 6 says we were enslaved to the realm of sin and injustice, but God delivered us from it transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were washed, Paul says, cleansed by the baptismal waters, declared righteous in Christ, sanctified, set apart for God and for his purposes. We are a new creation. That is why Paul calls us to live differently, because of who we are in Christ. That's how we can live differently, because of who we are and what he's done, that his spirit is alive in us. So look, if, you, if you've been trying to do this church thing, but you haven't been washed, sanctified, justified in Christ, Paul would say, hey, cease your striving. Stop trying to prove yourself and turn to Jesus. He's your righteousness. He's your only hope. If you've been trying to deal with personal matters like disputes of various kinds outside of the church, Paul would say, stop that. <laughs> That's not who you are. That's not who we are. This is an opportunity for us to bring our actual lives into the light of Christian community so that we might set the power and the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of God on display for the world to see. Let's ask God to do that work in us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.